0: I feel like today was the very first day that I actually felt adjusted to this new time change. I know that feels like a long time, but I don't know what it is. This one messes me up, the, the darkness in the morning. I'm an early morning person, and so when I, when I get up at like five or six in the morning and it's dark for another two hours, it just throws me off. And part of it might be that I'm, uh, we just got back in town last week. Uh, last week, myself and my family and our friends and their family, we went up to the mountains for spring break. We took the kids up to a cabin up in the mountains. And I don't know where your place is, but about twice a year, I just get this urge that I have to get to the mountains. I don't know if it's because I I grew up in primarily places that were very flat. I've always, I grew up in Alabama and I've lived in Florida for the last uh, 14 years or so. And so I'm used to flat landscapes. So when it's time to get out of town, I just feel like I need to get in the mountains And my my grandparents growing up had this farm in the mountains that we actually got a chance to visit last week. And it was just one of those places that we always went to as kids. And really the thing that distinguishes it for me almost more than anything are the sounds on this farm. Uh, There are some really specific sounds to this place that just draw me in, that remind me where I am. And and it it sounds like a strange thing, but when we pull onto the property, my grandparents' driveway is really long. It goes from this two-lane highway up to their house, and, and it's really long, but it's always been paved for as long as I can remember with these gray granite mountain landscaping rocks. And I can tell you th- the sound of those rocks under my tires is like a familiar, comforting sound to me. And it doesn't matter where you are on the property. You can hear when somebody pulls in. Like if you're sitting out on the porch of the farm, you may not know that somebody, you may not be able to see that somebody's coming up this long driveway because of the way that the house sits and the way that the woods cover your view. But you can hear as soon as somebody pulls off that little two-lane highway onto that road, you can hear the sound of those rocks under the tire and you know someone's on their way. You can hear it, you can feel it. There's a a creek that runs through the entire property from one side to the other, and I know that running water has a very specific sound, but I'm telling you, this specific creek has a very distinguishing sound. There's just something about it that sets it apart, and for me, it's those two sounds that make me know, man, I am at the farm. They've changed the house, they've changed the property over the years, but the property, it sounds the same to me every time we're there. And it's interesting how you can actually hear better in the mountains. Have you ever noticed when you're in the mountains and you're in these wide open spaces, you can actually hear better? There's actually a better way that you can hear. And every time I'm there, when I was a kid, we used to go out into the fields and we would love to just shout because you could hear the echo coming back to you from miles and miles away. And I don't know if you have these places like this, these places that you return to over the course of your life. That it doesn't matter how much they change or how many years pass. When you are in these places, they remind you of when you've been in these places in the past. And the mountains are that place for me. The farm is that place for me. And sometimes as we're pulling up that driveway, sometimes I'll roll the windows down in our car just so I can more distinctly hear the sound of those rocks under the tire and the sound of that creek rushing through the property so I know where I am. And it's interesting how in scripture we see so often that the mountains are a place that God returns to to speak to people. Like, like It tends to be this thing that God will bring people to a mountain when he's ready to speak to them. Jesus' temptation took place on a mountain. He appointed his 12 disciples on a mountain, gave his most famous sermon on a mountain, appeared to his disciples with Moses and Elijah in what's called the Transfiguration on a mountain. He commissioned his disciples on a mountain. In the Old Testament, the, the, the Jerusalem temple was located on a mountain If you rewind back to the beginning of the story of Moses, he saw the burning bush on a mountain, and now we reach this place in Scripture where the children of Israel have been in the wilderness for a while, and God is literally leading them, the Bible tells us, through a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. I mean, this is an incredible, incredible privilege at this time where they are literally being navigated by God. He's showing them the uh, steps to take. He's showing them the way to go. And God brings them to the base of a mountain. He brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. And it says this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 20. It says, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of of the mountain. So Moses went up. So Moses goes up to the top of this mountain and, and he spends quite a bit of time. We, we, we realize after a while that he's up there about 40 days, but probably one of the most significant things that God speaks to Moses in this time on top of the mountain is the Ten Commandments, possibly the most recognized list in history, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments tend to get a pretty bad rap some of the time. Like They have been the source of many confrontations. When I was growing up, I was in high school, and I lived in Montgomery, Alabama. And the Chief Justice of Alabama was a guy who's been in the news over over many years, over the years. His name at the time was Chief Justice Roy Moore. And when he took his position as Chief Justice, his first day in that role, he had a large granite sculpture of the Ten Commandments it's placed in the rotunda of the capitol Well, when people showed up to work at the rotunda of the Capitol, they did not like that this statue was there. And so it set off this literally months long legal battle about whether or not he in his role had the right to put it there. And even if he did have the right to put it there, was it a violation of separation of church and state? And so there were protests outside our Capitol. There were thousands of people on the steps of the Capitol of Montgomery, Alabama for months on end as this court case unraveled. The 10 commandments have often been a source of contention. And I think it might be a little bit because of how we refer to them. The Ten Commandments. Like Nobody really wants to be commanded. Like It's not even really a language that we use a lot in our everyday life. I have three small girls. I often have to tell them what to do and how to act and where to go, but I can't say in my life that I have ever commanded somebody. I I don't think I've ever actually told someone that I command them to do something. And we don't always refer to them as the Ten Commandments. They're also sometimes referred to as the law. Not much better. People don't like laws. People feel like laws are made to be broken. Even if you do respect the law, if you are a respecter of the law, you certainly don't want to be someone who breaks the law and yet... We violate the Ten Commandments quite often, and so if we refer to them as the law, then we have to refer to ourselves as lawbreakers. Nobody likes that. And this is actually an instance where I think the original language can give us a better understanding of the Ten Commandments than the language that we often use, this language of Ten Commandments and law. See, the original word that was used in Scripture to describe the Ten Commandments was a word called decalogue, decalogue. It's one word. It's one word, but it's really two words put together. It's a, it's a compound word. And the two words that are put together are, are the words ten, deca, and the word logos, which is words. So it's basically saying these are ten words from God. These are ten words for your life from God. And I think that in some ways this highlights the way that throughout history, We have diminished the power of words in our lives. Like in order for these to really have weight, in order for them to have an effect on our life, we really need to refer to them as commandments. But, But really, this was a moment in history where at this time, the idea that God would be giving words to you would actually hold more weight than the idea of being commanded to do something. That God, that the creator of the universe, was speaking directly into your situation. See, I, I think sometimes we act as though we are desperate for a word from God. I cannot move forward in my life until I get a word from God. I need a word from God. And the good news for you today is that you already have 10 words from God. You were you waiting on one, and God has given you 10. Isn't that just like God to exceed your expectation? And the Bible literally makes, there's, there's no ambiguity about whether or not this initial set of words from God is from God. In fact, in Exodus 32, chapter 16, it says these tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. God literally wrote these words in stone. And God gives the Ten Commandments these ten words. And I think the reason that we so often tend to want to resist the Ten Commandments is is that none of us want to be subjected to this massively high standard of which we must reach or else we fall short. Nobody wants to submit to a list that seems impossible to actually comply with. And I think that's how we've thought of the Ten Commandments throughout the years. But the truth is that if you really look at the list, these are not the highest level of commands that we can reach. In fact, author and preacher Erwin McManus describes the Ten Commandments as the lowest possible standard for humane living. Now, before you let that offend you, think about what the Ten Commandments are for a moment. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't take someone else's wife. Show honor to your father and mother. These aren't exactly hard uh, things, a high standard to live under. When we violate these words, these commandments from God, we're actually violating what it means to be human. We're actually living beneath ourselves. See, often I think we view the Ten Commandments as this high bar we have to somehow leap over when really it is a common standard of humanity that we unfortunately often crawl under. It is beneath us to live below these words from God. And God gives these words to Moses in this truly extraordinary moment on top of the mountain. And then, and then, Moses experiences what we all experience in moments like this because, see, this idea of of God bringing people to the mountain and and speaking to people, this is where we get the idea that when we have these extreme moments of clarity and of breakthrough, we call them mountaintop moments. We call them mountaintop moments. Moments, these moments where we feel as though we have extreme clarity, extreme break, breakthrough in our thinking. But then Moses experiences what we all experience after such a moment is that Moses now has to come back down the mountain. And I can say that in this season, I, I can kind of relate because I just have to tell you that there is this same sense, this same feeling. When you return from a trip like we returned from last week, where you have spent a week, no schedule, no time, no alarm clocks. And then you come back and that first alarm goes off. It's like a kick in the face. And, 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 and worse yet, it's dark outside now. You don't quite know what time it is. It doesn't even feel like the time it should be. Returning from a, a mountaintop experience is tough because you are faced suddenly with reality, You are faced with the the day-to-day life that you live. And no matter how much you love your life, no matter how much you love your family, no matter how much you love your job, it does not compare to a mountaintop moment where you had no responsibilities and you had no schedule. And this is why we have to be careful about, about, about comparing our everyday life with our mountaintop moments in life. Because we don't live on the mountaintop moments. We experience mountaintop moments, but we have to live in our everyday life. And and when we compare our everyday life to our mountaintop moments, we can begin to resent the the moments that God gives us in our everyday lives. And in this moment, Moses has received the Ten Commandments, and, and he does exactly what we should all do when we're coming down from a mountaintop moment. In Exodus 33, verse 15, it says, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. He went down the mountain with the two tablets in his hands. Moses is literally carrying these 10 words from God in his hands down the mountains into his everyday life where he works out his everyday leadership, where he interacts with his everyday family and his everyday tent that he lived in with these everyday people back in the valley. He's carrying the words God spoke on the mountain with him. See, mountaintop moments are meant to be carried into our mundane moments. Mountaintop moments are not meant to stay. Mountaintop moments are meant to be carried down. See, the purpose of a mountaintop moment is not to be able to point to an event that happened. It's, it, the point of a mountaintop moment is to be able to point to an event where something changed. It's not just that something happened. It's that something changed in that moment. And I don't know about you, but too often in my own life, I tend to, as it were, leave the tablets on the mountain, leave the words that God has spoken on the mountain. I leave the mountaintop moments on top of the mountain, and I return into my everyday life the same anxious, fearful, and faithful attitude that I took up the mountain with me. And this is not how it was intended to be. How is it that we can have these incredible moments of clarity, these incredible moments where we know that God has spoken into our lives, but the whole way down the mountain, we rehearse why it's not going to work and what could go wrong. We are meant to carry the words of God back into our everyday lives. And I can't imagine how difficult this was for Moses to literally carry these stones down the mountain. Before we left last week, a friend of mine gave me this backpack that was designed to carry like up to a pretty large child because we had planned to do some hikes and things like that. And so I actually, whenever we would go on a long hike, I would put our two and a half year old Olivia in this backpack on my back. And this was designed to properly distribute the weight. It strapped across multiple times. She was very pleased with it and, and, and it distributed the weight so that she didn't feel as heavy as she actually is which was great. But even this thing that was designed for that purpose, after a while, began to wear on my back and my shoulders. And I would have to take Olivia out and give her moments where she would walk by herself because traveling up and down a mountain carrying something is a difficult thing to do. And this is what Moses is doing in this moment. He's carrying these two tablets down the mountain, And I think in some ways, God is reminding us and he was reminding Moses that you cannot get a word from God and not change the way you walk with it. Because when Moses came down the mountain, he suddenly didn't have his hands and his arms available to him to help him navigate that terrain. It was a different way of walking. See, he actually had to carry the weight of the words of God. And I think sometimes we, we, we underestimate the weight of a word from God on our lives. But can I tell you, do not ask God for a word if you're not willing to carry the weight of it. Do not ask God for a word for your life if you're not willing to carry the weight of it back into your everyday life. Because what God says on the mountaintop will only change your life if you carry it with you back into the valley. If you carry it back to the people that you lead with every day of your life. See, I think as Moses was carrying these, I mean, he's carrying two large stone tablets down from a mountain. This is like CrossFit before there was CrossFit. If, if Moses, if we lived in, if Instagram was in Moses' time, he would have definitely been Instagramming his workout of the day, like the CrossFit crowd. They were all cheering me on. He would have just been Instagramming everything about it because there is something about carrying these stones down a mountain that would have brought strength to his life. And I think it's the same for us that when God gives us a word for our lives, when he gives us these mountaintop moments, we have to be willing to carry the weight of that because it's the Weight of those mountaintop moments that strengthen us to get back through the valley. It's the weight of those moments that, 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 if we're willing to carry the word into the valley, they strengthen us to be able to walk through the valley. And that's what Moses is, is doing in this moment. And we have to do the same. We have to commit to carrying the word of God so that the weight strengthens us for difficult moments. But In the same way that sometimes we we leave and we go on these trips and we have these wonderful experiences, these wonderful mountaintop moments, and the return is difficult, the return is hard, Moses returns to a house that is completely out of order. Moses returns to a moment that is completely confusing and disoriented, and if you look In Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1, you'll see that as he returns home from receiving this word from God himself, his people, the people that he's responsible for leading have have taken matters into their own hands. Beginning in verse 1, Exodus chapter 32 says, when the people saw that Moses was gone so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. We took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of of Egypt. The Bible says that while Moses is on his way down the mountain, he hears a sound and his his kind of assistant that's with him up on the mountain says it sounds like the sound of war. And Moses says, no, this doesn't sound like the sound of defeat. It doesn't sound like the sound of victory. This sounds like the sound of singing. They're worshiping this calf. And here's what I think is so interesting is that here's Moses and he's actually carrying the words of God for his people, the 10 commandments. And the first three Ten commandments deal with idolatry, putting something ahead of God, making an idol in, uh, in your own image and worshiping that instead of God. And what I find fascinating is that Moses is literally carrying down the mountain, the word that the children of Israel need in that moment. He's actually carrying the word of God into that situation where they're tempted and they're turning towards building an idol. He is carrying the word of God, warning them not to build idols. And yet they never receive that word in that moment because in that moment, it says Moses smashes the tablets on the ground in his anger. See the children of Israel taking matters into their own hands, trying to move ahead of the timeline of God actually thwarted them from hearing the word of God they needed in that moment. They were restless. They wanted something they could not see. They needed to hear words from God and words from God were on the way, but they decided to take matters into their own hand before they even received the word. And I think often we hear this story or we hear stories like this and it it feels antiquated. I mean, Highly doubtful that anyone in this room has ever melted down their possessions and fashioned it into an idol. Highly unlikely that someone in this room has actually made a physical idol, but that does not mean that we do not still have idols in our lives. It does not mean that we still do not have idols in our lives. An idol is so much more than a physical object. An idol is the object of our trust, It's the object of our trust. I recently heard idols defined as anything you need to be okay that is not Jesus. And if that is the definition of an idol, we all have idols in our lives. What do you need to be okay? See, the children of Israel have been in the wilderness for a while now, and the wilderness— will reveal your idols because it strips you of everything you have and it pushes you towards what you think you need because it has stripped you of everything that you actually have. And when we face the idols in our lives, we often realize that the things we believe will make us happy are actually things that we are in bondage to keeping us from happiness. They're the very things keeping us from happiness. See, today, we may not build idols with our hands, but we definitely build them with our hearts. We definitely place our trust in things other than Jesus in our hearts. And the truth is, and the problem is, and the difficult thing to navigate is, is that idols are not always bad things in and of themselves, the actual things that we make idols are not necessarily bad. We, we can make idols out of our money or our possessions, our houses, our careers. Even your friends, even your family and your children can become idols if you place them above God. If you put your trust in them more than God. I can just tell you in my own life, if there is an idol that I personally return to at times that that I personally struggle with, it is this idea of perfection. I really like when things are not just good, not just great. I like when things are perfect. The problem is life is rarely perfect, and this is not just in the sense of performance or production, but the problem is that I go through seasons where I'm overly evaluating every moment in my life, just thinking about how this already good moment could actually be better than it is. Like I will not be present in a moment with my family or my friends because I'm evaluating what I could have said, what I could have done, what I could have brought, what I could, could have contributed that would have made this moment better that would have made this moment perfect. Sometimes whenever we have plans as a family, I've already imagined how I think or how I want these plans to play out, how I want it to look. And then when we actually walk through the moment, when we actually have the experience, even if it's a great experience, I'll find myself sometimes disappointed or wanting because it still didn't look like I had imagined it. And this is an idol of perfection. See, idols, they actually end up robbing us and limiting God. Idols limit God. When the children of Israel fashioned this calf out of gold and called it their God, they reduced the God of the universe who had been leading them and guiding them, preceding this story. There are miracles of God's provision for food and water and protection in battle. He's literally leading them and guiding them and they've reduced this God to a poorly crafted cow they made with their hands. They fashioned it with their hands. Why would they settle for this homemade reduced Version of God, and the answer is they did it for the same reason we settle for idols in our own lives. As you look through these scriptures, I kind of see three things that led them to this moment, and the, the first is this that they forgot their source, they forgot their source, they forgot that God was already providing them with everything they need. As I said, they, they had already been receiving protection. They had already been receiving provision. They had already seen miracles of God giving them food and water and leading them. But then notice in verse 1 that they say, come, make us gods who will go before us. What's interesting about that is that their God was already going before them. Their God was leading them with a pillar of cloud at night and a pillar of fire during the day. The Bible says that that pillar went before them and led them. And yet here they are saying, we need a God who will go before us. They were blind to the fact that God was already doing what they said they were seeking. They wanted gods that would go before them, but they already had a God who was going before them. And I wonder how often we ask God to change our circumstances so that we can have peace, but God is inviting us to have peace despite our circumstances. God is is trying to remind us that he's already given us everything we need. We just don't always recognize it. And when I've read this story over the years, one of the things that always stood out to me is, is where did a generation of people who had been enslaved for 400 years, for generations, they had been enslaved. Where does a group of slaves get gold? Like, where do they get gold? Where, where do they get the things that they made this calf? Out of But it's interesting, if you go back to the beginning of this story in Exodus, you may remember that God brought plagues on the land of Egypt. And and he made living in Egypt so miserable for a season in order to kind of push the leadership of uh, of Egypt to let the children of Israel go. That the people of Egypt, it said, they were so tired of these plagues. They were so tired of living under these conditions that they were more than ready for the Israelites to leave. So when it was time for them to leave, the Bible tells us that God told the children of Israel to ask for gold and silver for their journey. Exodus 12, 35 says, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. The gold and the silver that the the children of Israel had was a result of the favor of God on their lives. And this is where we have so much in common with the children of Israel, because we make the things that God has given us the object of our trust and the object of our worship rather than the God who gave them to us. See, they took the gold that God favorably gave to them and they made an idol out of it. They made an object of worship out of it. They turned the blessing of God into the object of their worship. And this is what we do when we view our possessions, when we view our status, when we view the things that God has given us as the source. This is what we do when we forget that God is our source. Number two, they felt abandoned and alone. They felt abandoned and alone. Look at it in verse one. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, said, come, And make us gods who will go before us. They went on to say, as for Moses, we don't know when he's coming back. They, in this moment, feel abandoned. They feel alone. And when we feel like God or our circumstances have left us abandoned and have left us alone, we take matters into our own hands and we set up idols in our hearts. The original language here, when it talks about Moses being so long in returning, actually has an indication of disappointment. In other words, because they were disappointed in how long it was taking Moses, they took action. And I think this is where we need to learn the difference between living expectant and having expectations. Because when you live expectant, then you believe that however God works out your circumstance, whatever way it works its way out will be for your good. But when you live with expectations, you place your source of trust in a certain outcome. See, there is a difference between living expectant and having expectations. When I'm expectant and looking toward the future with hope, it leaves room for God to move in a way that He can only move. It leaves room for patience. It leaves room for me to not know how it's all going to work out. But when I have expectations, I'm looking toward the future only with hope for a specific outcome. See, they were disappointed that Moses had not returned even though they never knew how long Moses was supposed to take. They had in their minds a specific outcome of how long it should have taken Moses. And when, when their interpretation of the outcome didn't come true, they began to feel abandoned and alone. So you can be expectant about the future without applying your expectations to the future. And, and there is a difference. There is a difference because so often our expectations become idols because they limit God in the same way that the children of Israel limited God to something they fastened with their hands. So often we limit God to a specific outcome. And you, you may never have formed a cow out of gold and said, this is what God looks like but I can almost guarantee you at some point you have fastened an opinion or an outcome where you said, this is what God looks like. If this happens, this is what God looks like. If this outcome happens, this is what God looks like. If what God does lines up with my opinion, this is what God looks like. That outcome, that opinion so often can be an idol in your heart because in your heart, God looks like the outcome that you've envisioned, the outcome that you have set up. This is what we turn to when we feel abandoned and alone. And then finally, they lost faith in what got them to where they were. In Exodus chapter 32, verse one, it says, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So in the same breath, they acknowledge that Moses led them out of Egypt, but they're not confident that he will continue to lead them. And just three verses later, it says they took what was handed to them They made it into an idol, cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar. The same people who three verses earlier were saying, Moses brought us out of Egypt are now saying, this is what brought us out of Egypt. This thing that we fashioned is what brought us out of Egypt. And this is what we do when we forget what got us to where we were is that we assume that we got us to where we were. Something we made got us here. Something I fashioned got me here. How quickly we forget that God got us to where we are. See, they're looking at something they made and saying it now brought them out of Egypt. But here is the deep-rooted problem with idols in our lives. And there are many but the deepest problem is that in verse five. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar. They moved from making an idol to building an altar. They moved from making an idol to building an altar. See, that's the problem with idols is that you never just build idols. You will eventually bow to the idols that you've built. And when we talk about God as creating us, God created us as people who were created to worship. We were created to bow to something. And sometimes when we say that, we picture God as this egomaniac who needs our worship. But God created us to worship because God is love. He does everything rooted in love. And God created us to worship because he knows that there is nothing better he could desire for us than to become like him. And we become like whatever we worship. We become like whatever we set up as our source of trust and our source of hope. See, the question is never, are you worshiping? The question is, what are you worshiping? What have you set up as the object of trust in your life? What have you set up as the object of affection in your life? What have you set up as the, as the option or opinion or outcome in your life that you are waiting for? See, these questions, they require us to take a look deep in our hearts at the places where we put our trust, the things that we need in our lives to be okay that are not Jesus the moments that make us impatient, the moments that make us insecure, the moments that make us feel abandoned, the moments that make us feel alone? What are the things that we've placed above God? Where have we lost our trust? Where are we leaning on expected outcomes rather than expectancy in God's plan? Where are we putting things above Jesus? Will you bow your heads with me this morning and